You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 28th of November. And today we were live from Abu Dhabi Finance Week here in the nation's capital examining, among other things, the critical issue of sustainable finance. That is as COP28 kicks off this week. And in fact, one of our big conversations involves COP28. We've got 70,000 delegates due to arrive in the UAE to attend that climate change conference. But what are they going to eat? Well, after a hard-fought campaign, much of the food at the conference will be environmentally friendly. But what exactly does that mean? We heard from one of the event caterers, Louis Blake, who is the founder of the vegan company PXB. Meanwhile, at the Museum of the Future, dozens of futurists are in town to talk about the pressing issues of our time and looking into their crystal balls and looking ahead to next time, I suppose. We caught up with the world's only future generations commissioner, Sophie Howe from Wales. We also kept a close eye on a fascinating story that came out of New Zealand. The Kiwis have reversed their smoking ban. It was a world first and it was much applauded. So considering that didn't seem to work out, how should we manage tobacco addiction? We spoke to two experts, one local and one from New Zealand. And rescuers in India are now hopefully reaching the final stages of their efforts to get 41 construction workers out of a tunnel in the Indian Himalayas. Producer Jennifer Crichton had all the latest details. And Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all of the latest sporting headlines as well. Hello there, good morning. Yep, you are listening to The Agenda. And yes, indeed, we are coming to you live from Abu Dhabi Finance Week here in the nation's capital. Now, we are broadcasting from outdoors at the moment, but we are right in the middle of the event, surrounded by investment experts and insiders from all around the world. They've all flown in for the event. I can actually see a drone flying over us at the moment, videoing everything that's going on. Um, So we are going to grab fascinating speakers at all stages of the show as they come past. Well, we'll grab grab them, collar them, and make them come on the radio. Uh, But we're also going to be keeping you entertained with all the latest news, analysis, and comment. And there is this really interesting story coming out of New Zealand at the moment. And it involves the nation's world-leading smoking ban, which they have now sadly reversed. And I say sadly because I think most people would agree that realistically smoking is bad for your health and we probably shouldn't do it. And if we can discourage our children from doing it, when surely that's a good idea. Although I do know that there are some sort of question marks as to whether or not that ban should be government-led. Well, uh, the legislation would have banned cigarette sales next year to anyone born after 2008, but the new government there has abolished that policy. They say that it's part of a power-sharing deal, and it means that they will be able to make more revenue from the sales of cigarettes. Health experts are strongly criticising that sudden reversal. And in fact, I'm joined on the line by one of them now. Professor Richard Edwards is a tobacco control researcher. He's a public health expert at the University of Otago. He's also co-director of the Aspire Ioterra Research Centre. And he joins me now on the line. Professor Richards, thank you so much for your time. Tell me, was this decision unexpected? Yes, it was completely unexpected. It was a big shock. You know, we, these, this legislation had all been passed. The measures were going through. The implementation was underway. And then the new government comes out with this bombshell 
um, that they're going to repeal everything. So it was a huge shock, and, and I must say we were completely dismayed and disappointed and, and um, uh, yeah, very, very upset. So the original aim of the law, it's really interesting, the wording of it, but basically anyone born after 2008 would, ne- would never be allowed to buy tobacco. How, how did you come up with that as a sort of, um, I mean, the law, I get the principle of the law, but why that exact wording? Well, if I can take you back a bit, there's actually three things that were introduced. So one of them is the wording that you've talked about. And what that effectively means is that people born after a certain date would never legally be able to be sold tobacco products. So the sort of age of sale um, would go up progressively. And, and if you're born after that date, you'll never legally be able to buy them. But that wasn't the only measure. In fact, in some ways, that was the least important one. Um, the other two were to take the nicotine out of cigarettes because cigarettes are full of nicotines, which makes them highly addictive. Um, New Zealand would have been the first country in the world to take the nicotine out of cigarettes. And secondly, to reduce massively the number of places that sell cigarettes by 90%. So it wouldn't be available sort of on every street corner and in every um, settlement and so on. So that, those were the three measures that together were... I don't, we're world leading. No, no other country comes close to doing all those things or actually any of them. So um, it was really exciting for us who work in public health and who and I'm a former respiratory doctor. So, you know, we were really, really excited. We were going to see the end of smoking, more or less, or get close, very close to it. And suddenly the rug is pulled from under our feet by a new government. How much of a problem is smoking in New Zealand? Oh, well, it's like every other country. Smoking is a, a problem worldwide, unfortunately. It's, you know, it's in most countries, it's probably the biggest single preventable risk factor of premature death, and it causes 50-odd diseases, you know, lung cancer, heart disease, stroke, uh, chronic lung disease, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a huge problem, and uh, it causes um, an appreciable number of deaths in New Zealand and a whole lot of suffering um, uh, behind and around those deaths uh, as well. So a big, big problem, just as it will be, I've no doubt, in, in UAE and in pretty much every country you want to mention. So this was going to be, for us who work in public health, who work in health, who want to see health improved, this was going to be New Zealand leading the world in sort of getting rid of those health effects over time, and now we're not. People who support the abolition of that law say it was affecting tax revenues and also prevented personal choice. They, they sort of objected in many ways to the government imposing this on people. They, they say people should be allowed to choose to smoke if, if they want to. What would you say in response to those arguments? Well, they still could choose to smoke. They just couldn't smoke cigarettes with nicotine in them. Um, and what they could do is they could use other products like vaping products, which do have nicotine in them. So if they, if they want, and the main reason people smoke is to get the nicotine, so they could still do that, just not through smoking. They could still buy in shops, just not so many shops. Um, so uh, the, the choice is, is, is still there. But what we would really do is, is um, bring the choice back to people, because most people who smoke, desperately want to quit. If you ask them, 80 or 90% say they regret starting, 70 to 80% have tried to quit, 70% odd want to quit, uh, so they want to quit in the future. But they can't because they're addicted. So we're actually, we're going to be giving them back the choice to, uh, to no longer smoke and make it very easy for them to do that. Uh, unfortunately, that choice will no longer be uh, so easy for them. 
do you think there's any chance of a new government coming into power over the next few years and, you know, the law being reinstated? Well, we're, we're definitely not focused on that at the moment. What we want to do is persuade the current government that they've made a, a very, very stupid mistake um, and that they should admit that and go back to saying, look, OK, we will not repeal this legislation. Remember, this is going to happen. If this, if this government didn't do anything, this would all happen. It's all in place. It's come through our parliament. They're act, actually saying as an active measure, we want to destroy this legislation and to make the health of New Zealanders worse. So, um, so we're saying, come to your senses. Uh, let's, uh, you know, we'll forgive and forget. Let's have these measures back again, and let's once again be the world-leading country. Of course, a, a future government may um, come in and do the same things, but we're, we're not thinking about that scenario. We want to do this now. Professor Richard Edwards, a tobacco control researcher and public health expert at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate you coming on the agenda this morning. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. And we are in the midst of our conversation about how best to control tobacco usage and addiction. And that is after New Zealand actually reversed its policy of banning tobacco sales to anyone born after 2008. Uh, Now, the reason for that reversal was uh, more of a financial decision than a sort of moral decision. But nevertheless, uh, the conclusion is the same. Children uh, or young people will now be able to buy tobacco again. So, what is the best way to deal with this seemingly intractable problem? Uh, and how big is a uh, how big a problem is it here in the UAE? Um, well, we're joined now by a local public expert who's working here in the country. Andrea Leinberger Jabari is assistant director of tobacco research at New York University Abu Dhabi, just down the road from where we are here at Abu Dhabi Finance Week. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me on the line. Appreciate your time. Tell me, how many people are using tobacco products here in the UAE? Sure. Thanks for having me. So. Current estimates uh, for tobacco use in the UAE hover around, I'd say, about 20% of the population here currently uses tobacco products. But if you take a look at that, um, those numbers can actually be higher depending on how you slice the population. So certain segments of the population, tobacco use can be much higher. Oh, that's very interesting. Which are, where do you see the greatest usage? So we definitely see that tobacco use is highest amongst men in the UAE, Um, but also, um, you know, we at uh, New York University Abu Dhabi have a cohort study, and in our cohort study of the Emirati population, we did find that tobacco use was substantially higher, around about 30% of our study population uh, reported using tobacco products. How about how about the demographic? Do you see an increase in in young people using tobacco products? Um, we have some data on youth tobacco use, and I think it's still around maybe about twelve percent of the youth population in the UAE uses tobacco products. Um, however, I think with the introduction of vape, we may actually see. Um, Different, uh, different percentages of the population using nicotine products. Um, so, you know, we could see a change in maybe lower tobacco use rates, but higher use of vape, for example. So the, the reality is with the vape products is that they still have the nicotine in them, don't they? And that is still addictive. 
Correct. Yes. And so what is it that we want to stop people having access to? You know, is it the tobacco? Is it the smoke from the tobacco? You know, what is the most um, dangerous for your health? Or is it the nicotine that's actually bad for you? Sure. So, I mean, I think depending on the on who you're talking about, I think, well, overall, we know that tobacco products, the combustible elements in tobacco products are the most harmful and are the biggest cause of uh, death and disability um, and disease. And so I think we definitely want to try to limit, um, limit people's access or use of and help people who currently use tobacco products to quit smoking. Um, nicotine in and of itself isn't, um, isn't a cause of disease, but it is a cause of, um, you know, it is an addictive substance. And so we ought to be mindful of, a, of who has access to nicotine products as well. Do we see an impact on public health here? Do you also look at the, the sort of correlating figures when it comes to illnesses such as lung disease? Oh, sure, of course. I mean, I think, you know, um, some latest figures from the Tobacco Atlas show that um, tobacco use in the UAE costs us about 18 billion dirhams every year in lost revenue in um, healthcare expenditures. So it's a big problem. Do you think, and I'm, and I'm sure you're a lot closer to the issue that, than I am here, but do you ever see any chance of tobacco being banned in this country or more restrictions being imposed on the sale of tobacco products at least? I think we need to take a, a very close look at, at our policies in the UAE. I think certainly we do have some some strong policies that have currently been put into place. So, for example, the 100% uh, excise tax on uh, tobacco products is definitely a step in the right direction. We do have bans uh, on smoking in certain public places, and we do have um, some of the major efforts that have been put forth in the Framework Convention for Tobacco Control, such as graphic warning labels and and, um, restricted sales, but I think we definitely could do more. It is interesting. I, I can't really work out what the rules are when it comes to smoking indoors here. I'm always astonished when I walk into a bar or a restaurant and there are people smoking indoors because I, I, I kind of got the impression that that was banned around the world now because of passive smoking. But I don't think it's the case. I, I definitely do sometimes go to restaurants and find myself at a table next to people smoking, especially when it's cigars. It's just awful. Definitely. I, I know there there have been some loopholes, unfortunately, that have been worked into some of these regulations. And so I think we need to take a longer, harder look at um, how we could make these uh, smoking bans a little bit stronger and protect the health of people who, um, particularly people who are, are not smokers and, and um, protect the public's health, for sure. Have, in all the studies... Have researchers discovered the best way to discourage people from using tobacco products? Is there a particular way that is more effective? I think there isn't just one one way. I think there are multiple approaches. Certainly, uh, legislative smoking bans um, have had some evidence of uh, being effective in reducing secondhand smoke exposure. 
I think uh, we have seen evidence from countries that have implemented uh, tobacco taxation to make the price uh, higher has maybe dissuaded uh, young people from taking up the habit. But I think we need a multi-pronged approach. We need to have multiple efforts in place. We also need to make uh, smoking cessation services more widely available and accessible for all who need it. Because just as your previous um, guest said, most people who smoke do want to quit. And I would add that a lot of people who smoke have tried quitting and have not been successful. And so we need to put more support in place for those people who do want to quit. Andrea Leinberger, Jamari, Assistant Director of Tobacco Research at New York University in Abu Dhabi. Thank you so much for your time. Really interesting to have you on the agenda today. I did manage to give up smoking. I think, I I can't remember the last time I had a cigarette now. It took a while, but I have managed to do it. Um, And I'd be really interested to get your views on this. Certainly, I feel happier and healthier as a consequence and suffice to say I'm you know less likely to die of lung cancer it's so interesting it's a bit like the subject of smoking is a little bit like the subject of climate change do you remember there was a time when loads of people and there are still a few there were lots of sort of climate change deniers I think there are still some people who would insist it is their right to smoke and that people shouldn't be trying to prevent it they shouldn't be trying to interrupt their unfettered access to tobacco products but it is undoubtable that you know the health risks are just unquestionable you know you you probably shouldn't smoke and certainly i can't imagine anyone you know wants their children to ever smoke And welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us here on the agenda. You are listening to Georgia Tolly here. I am live from Abu Dhabi Finance Week here in the nation's capital. We are right in the middle of the event, which will be examining, among other things, the critical issue of sustainable finance and emerging trends in fintech. Uh, Really exciting to be down here. Lots and lots of other themes, lots of subjects that we will be talking about here, including uh, sustainable finance and ESG and the global economic outlook. Uh, But first, we're going to take a look at a major international news story now, which has really caught the imagination of people from all around the world. It really is a key uh, topic for anyone who is from India or for the Indian diaspora and indeed everywhere else in the world because rescuers in India have brought in so-called rat miners to try to rescue 41 construction workers who are trapped in a tunnel in the Indian Himalayas. I think we can just hear a little bit of, of how that mining is going now. Yeah, and that's the sound of those miners drilling through a narrow pipe. That's after previous attempts to use high-powered machines failed. Producer Jennifer Crichton's been following the story and joins me now. Jen, what's going on in India? Can you bring us up to date with a little bit more details for people who haven't been following the story? Of course. So these 42 men have been stuck in a 4.5-kilometre-long tunnel in Uttarakhand state since it collapsed on November the 12th. Now, they have been getting food, water, light, oxygen and medicines through a pipe, but efforts to dig a tunnel have now run into a series of snags with machinery breaking and grinding to a halt. So today, rescuers have a new plan, as micro-drilling expert Chris Cooper explained to assembled crowds last night. 
We're breaking out the cutter head. It'll be about another two hours, and then the intention is to do the next nine meters by hand tunnel. And that's the, that's the situation at the moment. So, all the debris out. We've got a cutter head to take out, so the cutting piece before has got to be taken out, and some of the pipe that's at the front has got to be cut out. It'll be about two hours. Then we start to do the hand tunneling. Yes, you heard that right, hand tunnelling, and that is every bit as laborious as it sounds. But Cooper says it gives rescuers the best shot of getting all those trapped men out safely. It really depends on how the ground behaves, but it could be quickly, it could be a bit longer. If we hit some lattice girder, then we've got to cut out the lattice girder, but we're, quite, we're confident we, we can get through now confident we can get through there which is exactly what everyone has been waiting to hear now for two weeks and in the last few hours Lieutenant General Syed Atta Hasnain of the local NDMA gave a press conference insisting quotes things are under control he added quotes food and medicine are going inside as per requirements psychological aspects are also being given importance and backup communications have been established so all looking pretty positive there in Uttarakhand despite those drilling problems and officials are positive that the ordeal of those 42 trapped miners may soon at last be over producer Jennifer Crichton there uh, with all the latest on that ongoing tunnel rescue in Uttarakhand state in India from Almaria Island. This is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8. Live at Abu Dhabi Finance Week, the largest financial and investment event in the region and a remarkable gathering that is reshaping the future of finance. Welcome back to the show. Yes, coming to you live from the nation's capital today. Plenty going on down here at the Abu Dhabi Finance Week. And while much of the world's focus might be here on the nation's capital right now, I'm afraid that is all going to change on Thursday because the attention will be shifting to the UN climate change talks at Expo City. And in fact, there's a strong possibility uh, that we maybe not down there on Thursday, but certainly on Friday broadcasting live. And I'm very much looking forward to it. I've got to go past on the way back from Abu Dhabi to um, but on the agenda here, we have been getting into the nitty gritty of exactly what's going to be going on at those talks. Uh, just to give you some sense of how big a deal it is, 70,000 delegates at least from around the world will be flying into the country, including world leaders and preeminent figures such as the Pope and Britain's King Charles. We've also been hearing a little bit about the food that they'll be eating there in the Blue Zone. And it is quite different to that served at previous COPs because there's been a huge campaign over the last 12 months or so from young climate activists saying that they wanted to ensure that the catering at the event is brought in line with its environmental goals. I mean, in many ways, it's completely astonishing that someone hadn't come up with this already. I mean, surely... If you're serving food at a climate change conference or a climate conference, it should be sustainable. Surely everything about the conference should be sustainable. Well, until now, it hasn't been. And earlier this month, we spoke to Gloria Equia Agare from the Youth Climate Movement, which launched that campaign. And she said their group had uh, sent a key set of requests to the organisers. We wrote a letter to the COP28 presidency requesting him to ensure that the food served at COP is climate friendly. We wanted to ensure that three quarter or 75% of the food served at COP is plant-based. The food there are affordable, nutritious, regionally sourced, where feasible, and also culturally inclusive. 
So we haven't quite got to 75%. It's really lovely to hear there from Gloria Equia Aguiare from the Youth Climate Movement. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined now by one of the caterers who will be providing that sustainable food. Louis Blake, thank you so much for joining me on the line. Uh, founder of PXB, the plant-based hospitality concept. Uh, Louis, tell me, how did you win this contract? And the fact that you are a plant-based uh, caterer is, of course, key to this conversation because uh, the sustainable food that the young campaigners wanted, they said it needed to be vegan because... Uh, animal-based agriculture is not environmentally friendly. Absolutely, yeah, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure to join you. And um, yeah, we actually have a permanent fixture at Expo City, which is the venue that will be hosting COP28. And so we have a number of restaurants and food trucks already on site. And so it was incredibly fortunate being there already, being uh, involved in the plant-based space for a long time, that we were in a well-positioned to support on this event. And so tell me a little bit more about what you are actually going to be serving, because I think that's what all the delegates are going to be. I'm going to be in the blue zone as well. I want to know what I'm going to get fed. (laughs) Absolutely. So we've coined this phrase plant forward. And for us, that means largely plant based and making plant based dishes accessible, affordable, delicious, nutritious, sustainable, taking all these things into account. And so what we're going to be doing is we have a 100 percent vegan food truck park inside the blue zone so we brought in some incredible restaurant concepts from around the world such as wild in the moon we're in paris amsterdam and dubai we've brought a an amazing sushi concept from barcelona called roots and rolls we have our very own chuck chick which is a a vegan chicken uh, shop we have floozy cookies which um, is a dubai and an expo favorite and we have a local chef chef goes by the name of prunch who's going to be serving indian street food so this is a 100% plant-based food truck park inside the blue zone and it's under our brand PXB, PXB and Partners. Uh, We also have some activations in the green zone which is really exciting because the public can access these and one of the things we're doing is actually some climate conscious cooking workshops on the Expo City Farms. We've got different local and international chefs that are going to be leading plant-based cooking workshops that the public can come and access and book every single day from the 3rd of December until the 12th. So we're really excited about that. Uh, and we have some other partners that we've brought in. We've brought in the, the amazing Sever, who are a local brand, uh, plant-based food. We've got Neat Burger that are joining us. We've got our own uh, Vegan Doco, which is a pizza concept. And of course, PXB Cafe will be open in the sustainability pavilion throughout. So yeah, lots going on. The other major sort of request from the young campaigners, uh, including the lady that we uh, were going to speak to earlier, Loria Equiar-Agare, that the key requirement was also that it would be affordable. Have you managed to keep your prices down? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, typically plant-based food, when you're working with whole foods, is always will always be cheaper than meat. And we've actually been able to work with some amazing local farms and growers. For example, the... Uh, the Expo City Farm that I mentioned is working with uh, Emirates Bio Farm, who are local, Below Farm, which is a local mushroom grower. So part of this uh, climate conscious catering is also working with uh, local growers and producers. But of course, we have to empower people to make positive decisions as it relates to their food. And we can only do that if the food is affordable. So guests will find that the food is very affordable um, this year at, at COP28. Can I 
ask, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not vegan. I, I'm not, I'm not against vegan food, but I, but I wouldn't mind a bit of chicken in a sandwich every now and then. <laughs> Will there be those options available as well, or uh, is the reality that that meat isn't a sustainable option? And, and I need to get used to the idea. Sure. Well, look, I think the the idea really is that. of the world reducing their meat intake significantly is more powerful than 2% of the world going vegan, for example. So we want to make sure there's choice for people. And that's where this plant forward phrase comes from. We're leading with plants. We're making whole foods, plant-based foods, the center of the plate. You can get all the key nutrients that you need from a plant-based diet. Um, But there will also be some some animal protein options for people as well. So we're looking at two thirds of the food available being um, 100% vegan or vegetarian. And there will also be some additional dishes which are meat. So it's going to give people the choice, but it's also going to make it um, easy for people if they haven't, like yourself, tried much plant-based foods to give it a go. And I'm confident they'll be pleasantly surprised. You mentioned us some of the uh, local farmers there, including the mushrooms, which is fantastic. We've spoken to them in the past on the program. In fact, we've spoken to lots of local farmers who are using clever techniques like aquaponics to grow their vegetables. But nevertheless, we are not a massive agricultural community here in the UAE. I mean, obviously not. We live in a desert. So have you found it difficult to sustainably source your ingredients? Well, look, I think there's always going to be challenges when you're in a desert, as you say. But there's some amazing innovation going on locally that's helping people to grow food here. Um, I think that's been important. I also think it's important to empower people to make uh, positive decisions and changes when they go home. I'm I'm so impressed by the work the UAE has done with this COP and I think a lot of the the events and the workshops that will take place at COP28 will serve as a catalyst to empower people to make better decisions when they go home and encourage them to shop sustainably, cook at home, look for more sustainable brands and solutions and potentially have a go at growing their own food. I think this is how we really empower people to take their diets and, uh, and and make a big impact and take it back into their own hands. Louis Blake, thank you so much for joining me on the line. I wish you all the best over the next couple of weeks. I know that it must be quite high pressure being one of the major caterers down there at this major global conference. Louis Blake, the founder of PXB, the plant-based hospitality concept. He'll be uh, in charge of many of the pop-up uh, food trucks and also the restaurants down there at Expo City during COP28, which of course starts on Thursday. From Almaria Island, this is The Agenda on Dubai I 103.8. Live at Abu Dhabi Finance Week, the largest financial and investment event in the region, and a remarkable gathering that is reshaping the future of finance. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda, coming to you live from Abu Dhabi Finance Week. We're here in the nation's capital, and in fact, a rather nice band has just. Uh, you know, started playing just next to us. We were worried that it was going to be very noisy for the radio, but I think it's actually adding a sort of nice atmosphere to our broadcasts this morning. Uh, we're going to be live until today, and the Business Breakfast are here all week. Uh, plenty for them to discuss on the subjects of sustainable finance and the future of fintech. But we are actually turning our attention now to another conference that's currently ongoing in Dubai, because the Future Forum started on Monday, bringing together dozens of the world's preeminent futurologists, all of them looking into their crystal balls and trying to decipher the problems of the future and uh, how we can handle them. Uh, dozens of fascinating conversations going 
going on at the Museum of the Future. And I'm delighted to say we've managed to secure a few minutes with one of the speakers who used to hold one of the most interesting titles I've ever heard because Sophie Howe was the world's first Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, uh, which if you don't know it, it's part of the United Kingdom. She's now focused on advising businesses and governmental organisations on sustainability and well-being as it relates to our young people and those who are yet to be born. Sophie, thank you so much for joining me on the line today. Lovely to have you with us. Tell me, why do future generations need their own representation in your view? Surely normal politicians should be doing that for them. Well, the sad reality is that um, that's not happening and we've we've only got to look ahead um, a day or so to some of the discussions that will be happening in um, also in Dubai in, in COP, um, where we're going to be you know discussing the future of our planet and the intersection of that between the future of humanity. And the reality is, is that none of us are on target uh, or on track to meet our targets um, in terms of keeping global warming at that 1.5 degrees or even at that two degrees. And who will be paying the price of that? Well, it's the next generation. It's our younger people and it's those people who are yet to be born. And that's why there's a real need to have a focus and accountability for current politicians in terms of how they're thinking, not just about current populations, those who might be voting them in at the next election, uh, but those people who are, who are coming behind and what sort of world do we leave behind for them. It's not a problem, actually, that we have here in the UAE. I think we have a, a minister for young people, and, and there are lots of young people involved in the government here. But I suppose uh, in other countries where you have a democratic system, quite often you've got middle-aged men and women with a four-year or a five-year tenure, and they're mm-hmm. a little bit preoccupied with those four to five years. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's some of the um, challenges of a democratic system um, that, uh, you know, long term thinking very rarely happens because, uh, you know, politicians are accountable to the electorate at the next election and they want to people please, if you like, those people who are going to vote for them. And obviously the unborn are not people who are going to vote for them just yet. So, There are some um, real challenges there, but there are also some real opportunities because across the world and particularly at at a UN level, the UN Secretary General is proposing that there should be a declaration for future generations. So um, this is the equivalent, I suppose, at a UN level of the law that we have in Wales, protecting the interests of future generations and the appointment of a UN special envoy for future generations to really try and make sure that our governments across the world are considering um, those yet to be born. How did it actually work when you were in government in Wales? Did, did people take you seriously? I mean, obviously, you're, you're an adult woman with, with plenty of important things to say. But, you know, were, were, you, you know, were your views, were, were the views of the young people that you were representing or the, those who aren't even born, you know, were they respected or did immediate problems overtake Well, I mean, you know, there are lots of uh, challenging issues that I had to deal with. I was actually outside of government, but with legal powers to intervene in decisions that governments might be taking, which I thought conflicted with um, protecting the interests of future generations. And some of the big changes that we've seen in Wales is rapidly um, upscaling our focus on uh, climate change, transforming the way that we think about mobility and framing that in the context of delivering long-term health and decarbonisation in our transport system, changing our school curriculum so that our children and young people are equipped 
with the skills that they will need in the future, not necessarily they will the skills that they might need in the jobs of today. And all of those things have been big transformations in Wales as a result of our Future Generations Act and as a result of an independent commissioner asking governments some difficult questions about how they've considered the long-term impact of the things that they're doing or indeed the things that they're not even thinking about. You mentioned there, of course, the COP28 talks that are coming up, the United Nations uh, potentially coming up with that uh, charter. What else would you like to see over the next two weeks uh, here in Dubai at that climate change conference? Well, there's going to be a stock take of the commitments that countries have made and whether they're being delivered. And I think we already know what that stock take um, is going to say. And, and, you know, I do think that some countries need to be named and shamed in that stock take, because what happens is that, you know, they gather in, in COP um, every year. They make their announcements about things they're going to do. They go back to their home countries and very often those announcements are not followed through on. And to me, that that is um, all connected to this issue of how we consider the interests of future generations, because often systems of governance across the world um, only look to the short term. And yes, we do need short term um, actions to deal with climate change, but we also need a long term plan. Um, we need to be investing now to save the future. And that requires a long-term view. And so I think if we had countries that had legal requirements to consider the long-term impact of the things that they do, then we might be having some different discussions and more productive discussions in, um, in COP this year and in future years. Sophie Howe there, who was formerly the world's first future generations commissioner for Wales, uh, now works on advising businesses and governmental organisations on sustainability and well-being. Sophie, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy down there at the Dubai Future Forum, indeed, due to take to the stage. Uh, so thank you so much for your time here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there, welcome back to the agenda. Coming to you live on an outside broadcast. Yep, we are based here at Abu Dhabi Finance Week today and there's a huge amount going on. In fact, I think proceedings must have just started because the crowds of people who are outside here enjoying the F&B have all drifted indoors and I imagine that one of the high-profile panels has just started. Uh, we are hoping to grab some of those panellists as they emerge uh, blinking-eyed from indoors. Uh, we're going to be talking about sustainable finance and emerging trends in fintech but it is time now to catch up on all the latest sports news both on and off the pitch uh, joining me with all the latest details is our sports editor chris mccarty who sent through this report yeah good morning georgia happy tuesday and as for the sport tonight only one place to start that's where the uefa champions league it returns after the international break all eyes will be on the parc de prance tonight psg taking on at newcastle that of course the group of death the other fixture sees ac milan host borussia dortmund newcastle well they're not going to go back far october 4th where they demolished psg at st james's park by four goals to one one of if not the greatest night in newcastle's history psg will be out for revenge tonight they're coming off the back of a five 
3-2 win over Monaco at the weekend. Luis Enrique, finally, you feel, getting his ideas across to Kylian Mbappe et al. I'm looking forward to this one. It's a must-win for Newcastle. They start the night bottom of the table. The other fixture, AC Milan against Borussia Dortmund, a must-win for both sides in this nip-and-tuck group. The other fixtures to look out for tonight, well, Celtic, they go to Rome, Stadio Olimpico, the host venue for Lazio against Celtic. Celtic, of course, a side that has struggled in recent years in the Champions League. All eyes then turn to tomorrow evening. We'll touch on that, I'm sure, tomorrow morning. But Manchester United, they go to, and I quote here, hell. They're into Istanbul. They take on Galatasaray, Galatasaray side. Lest we forget, one at Old Trafford just a few short weeks ago. So all eyes on the UEFA Champions League. I'll be staying up well past my bedtime tonight to watch it all. It should be a cracker. Two fixtures off at 9.45, one of those being Lazio against Celtic, and then the other six ties off at midnight. Always lovely to hear from Chris McCarty, our sports editor. You can always hear more of him as well every single day from 5 p.m. It is, uh, he is the co-host of your Drive Time show, Off Script. Uh, he'll be joined from 5 p.m. with Robbie and Sonal. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m.